Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Colin Guldeman, who's an economist with the Royal Bank of Canada, about his recent thought leadership piece, The Price of Power, How to Cut Canada's Net Zero Electricity Bill. So welcome to the interview, Colin. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Now, before we get into the, the nitty gritty of your uh, of your paper, which I found very interesting and we've got lots to talk about, I have to say this subject drives me batty because we've been talking about it here at Energy Media for years now. I've interviewed economists like uh, Professor Mark Jackard, uh, the various think tanks like the Canadian Climate Institute. I, I mean, there's just there are plenty of informed folks like yourself who have been saying that the energy transition uh, spurred on by climate policy means we need two to three times more electricity by 2050. We need to make significant changes to our electricity systems. And I say systems because in Canada, we have, you know, basically 10 systems in each one in each province and then, and then the territories. And we just can't put this on the on Canadian on the radar on the public radar. No, we don't, nobody wants to talk about it. And I kind of curious about what's your take on that? Why aren't we having this conversation that's so desperately needed? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, it was really the impetus for this report because we recognize the importance of building out the electricity grid to support decarbonization across industries. So transportation, industrial power grids, um, you know, critical for things like green steel production. These things are real challenges. They require a lot of upfront investment. And it is frustrating um, that it's not more of a sort of consumer issue past, you know, what you pay for electricity out of the, the plugs in your home. And I think a large part of that is just, you know, we have a built infrastructure that took 100 years to build and, and we're benefiting, you know, from those legacy investments Our our, you know, Policymakers in the 1960s did think very critically about how we were going to connect the country, whether it be, you know, electricity or even earlier than that with railways or other major infrastructure projects. So I think what we're trying to sort of argue and, and, and project is really that we're in a brand new sort of nation building era. Electricity will be the first sort of piece of that. But there's other infrastructure questions, you know, around transition, whether it be carbon capture and storage or hydrogen um, filling stations for transportation or hydrogen in industry. These things are massive investments in infrastructure. Electricity is where we need to start. And so putting that on the radar for, for both consumers, recognizing cost could rise for households and for policymakers in, in designing the right regulatory and market framework for deploying that infrastructure was really what we were trying to do with this, pulling this issue forward. Now, one of the points you make in your paper is that if Canada isn't careful, uh, we could end up like Europe with an energy crisis. 
And mm-hmm. I know that sounds ridiculous. We, we Canadians are are spoiled with the electricity system that we have. I mean, our with the odd exception of you know Ontario a few you know number of years ago where prices spiked because there were some some problems with the generations uh, the uh, generation system. Uh, but for the most part, electricity systems in Canada deliver uh, reliable, cheap power. When they flick the switch, the light comes on, and thus it has ever been. With aside from the odd outage caused by a storm, you know, where we have this really reliable, terrific system, 20th century electricity system that we built in this country. But if you look at other countries, like the Americans, it's it's bananas what they're doing down there. The American systems are being transformed by new technologies and and the uh, adoption of renewables and wind and solar and now more and more storage. They're changing their regulatory environment. Their Federal Energy uh, Regulatory uh, Commission is is involved in that. I I mean, it's being transformed in real time. And when I talk to American experts, the the changes that are coming are just at light speed. And now, of course, the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act is going to turbocharge all of that even more. Because they get it, electricity is the energy of the future, of the 21st century. It used to be fossil fuels. Now it's going to be clean energy and low-carbon fuels like hydrogen and, and, and so on. We don't get it here. We're behind the curve. So did you write this report? And I mean, this is the Royal Bank. I mean, you guys have clout. When you write something like this, people pay attention. Policymakers pay attention. But did you write that this in part to get people's attention, you know, kind of grab them by the lapels a little bit and give them a shake and say, hey, we got a real issue here. Yeah, and I think nowhere in in Canada is that better identified than in Ontario. You know, the the, um, the ISO, which is responsible for planning the Ontario grid effectively, has a number of reports that show, you know, mid-decade, this decade, like in a couple of years, Ontario could be facing energy shortages because we don't have enough generating assets as nuclear facilities come offline for refurbishment and you know the contracts for gas and renewables, non-hydro renewables largely expire. And that should be alarming to people because what that means is Ontario will be procuring new power sources and indeed has just procured you know, a gigawatt and a half of natural gas fired electricity. And you know, notably has been offering you know, the producers of that electricity insurance against changes in the policy environment that make that, you know, no longer feasible because of carbon pricing or what have you. So these are real live policy decisions that are happening today, which don't really get the coverage they deserve. And what we wanted to do in this piece was really, you know, show what the options are, understand the option set, discuss the economics of doing those things and the various pathways we have, because we're really fortunate actually in this country on electricity. You know, for one thing, we're, we're beneficiaries of a legacy investment in things like nuclear and hydropower, which is unique, you know, in the developed world to Canada that we have access to both of these sources. You know, the US would be another example of a country that has that. They're also much bigger than we are, you know, in terms of population and so have need for a lot more electricity. But the thing that's, I think, kind of unique about the electricity space today is there's brand new technologies and technologies that have been developed and commercialized over the last 10 years that help us meet the simultaneous goal of adding electrical supply and cutting emissions and and helping cut emissions across the economy. Things like wind and solar power, which have come down the cost curve dramatically in the last 10 years, 70 and 90% respectively, those are huge cost declines. 
battery storage, compressed air storage, these things, you know, are changing and we should be deploying them. Uh, <clears throat> we've been hearing a lot these days about how energy uh, used to be a commodity. It was coal, it was oil, it was natural gas. You dug it up out of the ground and prices fluctuated depending on uh, demand and supply and, and, and so on. But energy is becoming a technology. And that is a fundamental change in the in the energy systems of globally and nationally and provincially here, because they don't behave the same way. And they were and in conjunction with that, at the same time, we're also talking about these new energy technologies, wind, solar, batteries, and so on, that are on learning curves. And I think this mm -hmm. is really important. Like you know, people will remember Moore's law from the uh from the, the 90s you know where every time you double the amount of number of circuits on a uh, a silicon wafer then the price will go down it'll drop in half or whatever it was but now we have Wright's law the learning curve where every time you double the production of a particular technology like a solar panels so if you go from a million solar panels a year to two million solar panels a year every time you do that you will drop 10 percent or 20%. It depends. The percentage is different for each for each technology. But what that means is if wind and solar are cheap now, wait 10 years. If battery is if batteries are becoming competitive now, wait 10 years. And so we have all of this tremendous te energy technology that is now becoming available to us. It's competitive and we need to grapple with it and we just are not. And mm -hmm. would you agree with that that take? So I think there's a couple of things to, to kind of probe in on that further. So the learning curve, I think there's a lot of academic debate on what's driving it. And the real, you know, it, it's not entirely clear to me, having read some work by academic economists on learning curves, whether it's, you know, the production efficiencies, like that's going to matter, this learning by doing idea, the more solar panels you make, you make the better at, at making them you get, um, sort of production line, that sort of thing. There's also this question around, you know, did solar really benefit from an expansion of polysilicon extraction efficiencies? And so are we at a point where there are no longer polysilicon extraction efficiencies to get? And so, you know, rising demand and tightening supply and how do you kind of, you know, it's not clear to me where the price of solar panels is going to go. It's not this perfect um, linear trajectory of like when you double it, prices fall 12%. That's certainly what the estimates suggest over the last 10 years or 20 years. Whether that continues going forward is a huge question mark in my view. Generally, as these learning curves, you know, proceed, the more you install, the, the sort of smaller the learning effect is, kind of diminishes over time. What's good is that these technologies are competitive today. And where we maybe need learning in, in the electricity space is on the storage side of things. You know, on a, on a kilowatt hour to kilowatt hour basis, wind and solar in good sites outcompetes every other electricity technology. Where they start to face challenges is in those periods where the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining. We need that electricity then. You know, people like to charge their cars overnight. We can't do that with solar panels because the sun's down. So we need to store the energy. And that's what's, I think, fundamentally different too, you know, as you led into this question with the commodity versus technology question, because fossil fuels, which we've been using for energy for decades, are really easy to store. Natural gas, we have salt caverns under the ground. We load them up 
over the summertime. We use them in the winter. That's very convenient. Electricity, we don't have totally similar corollary storage systems for electricity. It's just not exactly that easy to store an electron rather than a molecule. So that's where I think we need to be developing the technology in this sort of long-term storage space. And there's a lot of learning to do and a lot of potential cost declines that can come. And it's not just a battery story, right? There are these compressed air storage. There's also pumped hydro storage, which we have some of in Ontario and across the country. And so there are alternative technologies. And I think what's really critical is that we think you know, deliberately about how to deploy them, where they make sense and where they don't make sense. And that's what we really did in this paper was look at a couple of scenarios. And, you know, what we found is that the economics of, of an all renewables grid with storage and transmission are challenging. Now, that doesn't mean we should not have any battery storage. But what it does mean is we need to think carefully about what other assets we can develop that allow us to mitigate some of the potential upstream costs to consumers. And we see a real role in deploying hydro and nuclear technology, having better supply chains for those assets, co-developing them across provinces. That will help bring the cost of those technologies down, just like learning curves would in other technologies. So we think there's a role there in deploying those. I'm really glad you brought up hydro because um, you say in the report that hydro is Canada's trump card. Mm-hmm. And on in, in energy media, we have been banging this drum again for years because uh, Canada has, a, you know, three big hydro provinces, BC, Manitoba, and Quebec. And I guess Newfoundland, Labrador, you could add them mm-hmm. as, as well. And basically hydro dams can act as storage for renewable, uh, for wind and solar. Yeah. You, you uh, hold back the water, uh, in the dam when during the day when the sun is shining or when the wind is blowing and then you release the water uh, and uh, create electricity uh, at night when the sun the sun is not shining or when the wind is not is not blowing and not only that but those provinces with the hydro capacity are ideally situated you have bc on one coast you've got manitoba in the middle you've got quebec right next to ontario which is obviously the biggest market and you've got uh, Newfoundland, Labrador in, in the eastern. I mean, I it doesn't take a lot of effort to imagine a system of east-west interties, an east-west system and with, with markets and all working together with lots of renewables and and that uh, and using the, the hydro most efficiently for its highest value per mm-hmm. kilowatt hour or megawatt hour. And and the, that the thing that might be the most efficient way to do this, the smartest way to do this, the cheapest way to do this is the one thing that we cannot get the provinces to talk about. Yeah. So to, to put a little bit of meat on the bones of that argument, there's a North American renewables integration study that was done a number of years ago. And, you know, there's lots of good stuff in that study, but the, the really salient thing, I think, for this debate is that the more renewables you add, the higher is the value of hydro reservoir generation because of this feature that we can use it to balance renewables in the grid. It's, it's a really interesting finding from this study. And it, you know, it basically makes more hydro sites economically viable. There's a couple of challenges. So to your point about transmission, yeah, it's a great technology. It's like, actually, I mean, calling it a technology is almost, you know, ridiculous because we've been doing it for decades. 
these things work. We know how they work. We understand the project economics. It's really largely a challenge about getting the things built and making the argument that they should be east-west rather than north-south. Because, you know, if you're planning a transmission line out of Manitoba and you have the option to sell electricity into a, you know, a regulated lower price market like Saskatchewan, or you can sell it south into the U.S. and get higher spot rates, the economics, you know, of the project make more sense going north-south. And that's what we've seen. There's a lot of north-south intertie in Canada with the U.S. So is that an opportunity to work with, you know, American partners and leverage some of their great renewable sites? Maybe, you know, going east-west helps us, going north-south also helps us. We should probably be building a lot more transmission infrastructure. But in the absence of transmission, that's where I think hydro really plays an even more important role. Because if we're going to have sort of fractionalized regional grids, then hydro still has significant value because we're going to be installing a bunch of renewables because they are the cheapest on an individual project basis. And as we plan out the grid over one to three year intervals, those are naturally going to win. They're quick to build, they're inexpensive, they provide energy when we need them. That also requires a bit of a rethink from the regulatory side, because if we're building assets in one to three year chunks, how does an eight to 10 year hydro project or a 12 year nuclear project fit into that system? You know, in some provinces, you can smooth this all through the rate base and there's like, you know, a provincial utilities commission that can approve projects. In others, you know, it's less clear exactly how you do that. And so there's a big rethink, I think, that needs to happen nationally and at the provincial level about what regulatory structure we want to have and making sure it, you know, pays for this balancing that hydro can do, pay hydro producers more when they're balancing renewables. And it recognizes the long lead times of some of these really important clean electricity projects. Are we not uh, giving away our hydro resources too cheaply to the Americans? Like, it, it, I agree with you. I mean, there was an, an, uh, a study that came out of the uh, School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary a couple of years ago. Uh, Kent Fellows, uh, an economist, was, um, was the lead author. And it was about Site C, the BC Hydro's big project, the, probably the last dam they'll ever build, or so they say. And the... The, what he looked at is, look, if you, all you're doing is selling a megawatt hour of Site C electricity, it makes no sense to build it because the costs mm. have spiraled so high that the cost per megawatt hour is not competitive with anything. It, was just, it could be $150 a megawatt hour. It's crazy. He said, but if you tie it into renewables east and west so that the value of a megawatt hour of hydro power goes up, you know, now that that maybe that megawatt hour is valued at $100 or $150. Mm-hmm. Now that Site C Act dam actually makes economic sense to build. And so BC, uh, Manitoba, and Quebec are all sending power south. Quebec would like to send more power south down into the New England states. Manitoba wants to sell more power south. But if they get $30, $40, $50 a megawatt hour when they could be getting $100 a megawatt hour, hypothetically, of course, in Canada by doing more east-west trade and optimizing the value of that megawatt hour, then aren't we, aren't the crown corporations, you know, that are in charge of this leaving money on the table? Yeah, I think that's a challenging question to answer because the project economics individually will determine where the power flows. And I think to your point about, you know, flowing power east-west and it being a higher value for Alberta, um, that's that's something Alberta needs to want to take advantage of. 
And, you know, I think right now, the challenge is we don't have a regulatory environment that precludes some of these uh, assets like natural gas, unabated natural gas facilities. The government's working on a clean electricity standard, which, you know, will likely take some of the economic logic out of building gas plants away from, you know, these provincial systems. Um, and I think make the transmission argument much more compelling. But it's not clear exactly how those economics work out individually. And I think that's where we need to be really doing some additional thinking. And, you know, the, the Minister Wilkinson, the Minister for Natural Resources has these regional energy tables. I'd argue we almost need on electricity an inter-regional table. And we need to, you know, kind of come together and recognize that BC has something that Alberta can really use. And there may need to be support systems in place to help them leverage those assets. But I don't think that selling power north-south is necessarily a bad thing, especially because, you know, to some degree, it's worth noting that a lot of U.S. states still use a lot of coal. And so if Canadian hydropower can, you know, economically provide a way for, you know, the U.S. to get off coal, that's still a good global outcome. Now, if it makes our route to a net zero grid in 2035 more challenging, there's a trade-off there for sure. And we should be discussing that trade-off. But overall, climate change is a global problem. And so helping our neighbors to the south do that may be helpful. And in fact, I think the U.S. is thinking quite a lot about transmission. There's a lot of discussion around, you know, these additional changes to the IRA and the Senate bill that would really aim to improve transmission. And a lot of estimates, for example, you know, some by Jesse Jenkins, um, who's a, who's a uh, you know, energy commentator in the US who does some really good modeling, um, suggested, you know, the more transmission grows, the greater are the cuts from the IRA. So Canada needs to take a similar sort of view. The more transmission infrastructure we build, the more renewables we can deploy, the less and less carbon we have in our electricity system, the better. Well, let's let's talk about the the regulatory environment because clearly it's very different in the U.S. That Canada has, uh, you know, the Canadian Energy Regulator uh, has some authority when electricity crosses uh, boundaries. So mm -hmm. fair enough, but it doesn't have nearly the 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 role that the that FERC has in the U.S. But but there's another piece missing here of the regulatory uh, framework, and that is the the regional planning bodies that the the U.S. has, where you know the the West Coast uh, you know the states the Western states can come together and plan as a regional group, uh, and they model as a region. This is another thing that that uh, astounds me is how little modeling gets done in Canada compared to the U.S. The U.S. has these huge laboratories like the the mm -hmm. renewable energy laboratory and and you know the the lawrence livermore laboratory and they all do they all have economists on staff who do these extensive modeling exercises so that they can talk intelligently about well this option will lead us here and this option will cost us this and you know and, and we don't do that in in canada we're not nearly to the extent that that we should anyway where i'm going with this colin is that is that the Americans have got a system of uh, that allows them to do at least to some extent national planning around their electricity systems to change the regulatory environment to get to cooperate with the states. We're just talking about a pan Canadian grid council. Mm -hmm. You know, we haven't implemented it yet. We're just talking about it, 
and and never mind regional planning. So is that maybe the f- first place we have to start is that the we need some really serious conversations about about planning uh, our electricity uh, system of the future across, you know, and do it on a national basis, not on a provincial basis. Yeah, so I think there are projects and discussions that are happening across the country that that indicate you know, momentum on this. The Atlantic Loop being a good example of a transmission project that is going to help one province or a couple of provinces cut the carbon footprint of their electricity generation system via hydro from other provinces. That's great. And we should definitely be, you know, applauding the successes as they happen. But to your point about just starting to talk about, you know, a national grid council versus the US, which has these things established. And as you mentioned, a number of modeling um, centers yeah, you know, this is this is the the decadal challenge for Canada, building a net zero electricity grid by 2035. And, you know, in electricity, a decade is like tomorrow, right? Like we need to have these things, some of these decisions made today. And that's where I think we're not acting with nearly enough urgency on this issue. Now, as the government, the federal government uses its powers via the clean electricity regulations, I think we're going to start to see some of these hard decisions happening. And that's that's a good and challenging thing we have to do this decade, recognizing that, you know, there is this big question mark around the role of natural gas in a net zero electricity system. We talk a lot in the paper about carbon capture as a potential pathway. And, and you know, Mark Jackard, who you mentioned earlier, has a great piece, which he wrote with his colleague Brad Griffin for the David Suzuki Foundation. And that, that piece models out electricity demand to 2035 and does, in fact, use quite a lot of gas with CCS because it, it is, you know, a, an economically viable option. The challenge, of course, with, with carbon capture is just that we don't know how well these things work. We haven't built, you know, very many gas plants with carbon capture. So there is a risk we're taking when we do that. And that's why we think we've got to mitigate the risk as much as we can. And building, you know, natural gas plants under the assumption we can capture the carbon when we haven't done it before is this sort of unquantifiable risk. We have to be careful about how we're taking it. Now, if we're talking about a gas plant with carbon capture and storage in Alberta, that's one thing. Alberta mm-hmm. has been as a, you know, been doing this now for over a decade. You have the, the Quest project, it's got other, it's got the carbon trunk line. Uh, it has the geology uh, that is conducive to long-term storage of, of CO2. Uh, so I could see an argument for, uh, you know, like if the NMAX, the, uh, the Calgary city of Calgary owned utility. I was just there and interviewed one of their VPs about what are the, what's the role of gas, you know, and of course they're very cagey about it because I think a gas is now like 80 or 90% of their generation mix. And they, and it's a, a bit of a touchy subject with the clean electricity standard coming up. Uh, but clearly, you know, Carbon cap, or carbon capture is going to be a part of that, mm-hmm. and I can, and that can make some sense. I mean, they've got they've got the conditions in place. In Ontario, I don't see I don't see it. I mean, you don't have the infrastructure. You probably do. You have the geology. I've never seen anything uh, that indicates that you could store CO two reliably and safely uh, in Ontario. Uh, and yet the the Ontario government is is going ahead with you know more as you just said a, a what is it a gig and a half a gigawatt and a half of, uh, of natural gas generation capacity. So 
even in Ontario, if you go ahead with it, what do you do with the, the CO2 if you did try to capture it? Yeah, so I'm going to challenge a little bit this idea that we know how CCS is going to work on a natural gas power plant because Quest is a hydrogen upgrader, so it's a bit of a different process. And a number of the refinery, you know, or, or the nutrient project, these are more concentrated CO2 streams. So it's not that clear to me that we know exactly how gas capture, flue gas capture on a, on a natural gas facility is going to work. I think, you know, and again, I'm not an engineer or, or a sort of solvent scientist. Um, so that's a question really for someone that's more, has more expertise in carbon capture. But I think we ought to recognize we haven't really done this before. And so we don't know exactly what, our, what we're getting ourselves into. With respect to the geology in Ontario, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's a question we do have to answer if this is the pathway we're sort of espousing for Ontario's electricity system. And so to this point about designing the right sort of regulatory and planning approaches, we should be looking at what the options are. And indeed the ISO is doing an zero pathways study. One of the things that we should be looking at is the geology of storage or, or where we can put this carbon if it's not in Ontario. And what infrastructure do we need? These are all added costs for CCS. And, and if the costs start to mount, it may not be economical relative to a nuclear power plant or another round of hydro dams. The other thing we should be thinking about as we kind of think about the relative economics of this is about local economic benefits. You know, Ontario has been talking for a long time about, you know, the potential for hydropower in Northern Ontario. And we put out a piece in June that looked at economic reconciliation with indigenous groups through the lens of clean energy transition. And we found a lot of Canada's best wind and solar energy sites are located near or on indigenous title-like lands. And so there's a real economic development opportunity in renewable energy in you know, Northern Ontario hydro. Those local benefits, you know, to your point about whether or not we're selling hydro too cheaply to the US, those local economic benefits of those, those installations should fit into our calculus for what the correct approach to the electricity system is. And then the last thing I'll say on, on the sort of relative benefits of gas or renewables or whatever is, you know, natural gas being a commodity is convenient because it can be stored, you know, this molecule argument I've made before. It's also a risk. And that's what we're seeing in, in Europe. So in Canada, we're fortunate to be the producer of natural gas. And so we perhaps don't have the same sort of supply shut off risk that, that Europe is facing because of Russia's you know, weaponization of their energy supplies. But what we do face is that natural gas continues to be the marginal price setter in our electricity system. So the extent to which natural gas is becoming more and more a sort of global commodity with the installation of these LNG facilities, that means we're more, you know, our energy costs in Canada are less insulated from global political, geopolitical and energy events. And that means that the more gas we have in the system, the more exposed we are to those prices. And we won't really face, you know, a total resolution of that risk until we're no longer using gas at all. So there's this geopolitical angle that we ought to be thinking about as well that, that matters a lot for the sort of marginal pricing of the electricity system. And that's, that's what Europe is going through now. You know, when renewables are producing, they see really high profits because they get the same price that a gas facility with, you know, tenfold cost increases over the last year is getting. Let's uh, begin to wrap up our conversation with uh, nuclear. Uh, 
uh, that's highly controversial. Mm-hmm. And the particularly, the, I don't think anybody's talking about the, you know, 70s style big nuclear plants like the Darlington and the Pickering. We're, we're talking about now small modular reactors. And there's a big debate about whether or not SMR technology will be, in fact, uh, lower cost than the big projects, whether they can be brought in on, on uh, budget, on uh, schedule. Uh, so mm-hmm. many, so many unknowns. But you did include n- nuclear in your modeling. Can you tell us about that and tell us about some of the assumptions, especially around uh, price? Yeah, so, you know, nuclear is more expensive. There's no question. A large part of why it's more expensive is because we have required a high level of safety controls for nuclear, which is rightful. You know, these things can be, if poorly managed, extremely dangerous. What I think we ought to recognize about nuclear power is first and foremost, you know, the Canadian industry has a good track record. And, you know, that I think is important when we talk about nuclear power in Canada. Another thing to think about with respect to costs is these are bespoke engineering projects. They have a lot of site prep, they're massive, you know, bits of concrete we're pouring, they have complex engineering. That makes them expensive, but part of what makes them expensive is also just that we like don't build very many of these things and we don't have a strategy around it. And so that I think is where the SMRs, these small modular reactors come in because they could be if they were smaller than the sort of typical gigawatt facility we install for nuclear, they can be applied more broadly. Now there's heaps of concerns, you know, from local folks on whether or not they want a nuclear reactor in their backyard. I understand those. What I think we need to get around is, you know, comfort as well as the potential economic benefits and the fact that these could flexibly respond to a couple of things. One, you know, industrial heat demand. There's a real potential here for using SMRs both for electricity generation and for sort of these like district steam systems that allow us to sort of, you know, cleanly provide high heat temperature steam for uh, industrial facilities. With respect to the SMR technology development, we're not, I think, at the place where we would need to be for this sort of maximal view on small modular nuclear application. OPG's installing one. It may, in fact, be the first SMR installed in North America. When it comes online, I think they're planning that for 2028. Um, this thing is 300 megawatts. And it's you know a boiling water, light water reactor. Um, so it's a bit different than the kind of existing nuclear facilities we have in Ontario, uh, can do reactors, which are of course Canadian technology. There's an opportunity here, I think, for Canada lead in developing a technology that could be really useful for the rest of the world as well. You know, we're blessed, we have these hydro assets, we have good wind and solar in the prairies, we can deploy some of these things. A lot of other countries in the world may not be able to do that. And so nuclear could be a way Canada helps, you know, the rest of the world decarbonize as well, if we can kind of take the first steps, commercialize this technology and sell it forward. The only thing I would add is there's still a traditional nuclear play that is happening as we as we speak. And it's the refurbishment of our existing reactors, extending their lives with, you know, effectively replacing the sort of internal components on all the reactors. That's an important part of Ontario's sort of electricity security actions because Ontario still gets 60% of its power from nuclear. Um, and so doing that makes a lot of sense. And I, I was actually quite pleased to see the province asked OPG to do that or to study refurbishing the Pickering reactor, which was going to be a huge challenge in the very near term um, 
for the provinces that was decommissioned. So I think we'll see what the sort of large scale traditional nuclear, you know, what role that can play um, in near term for the province of Ontario. And the sort of expansion of SMRs is promising, but we're far from a world where that really looks viable. Now, I think where that could start to change is to your point about learning curves. Should we build some of these SMRs and build a workforce that knows how to do them, you know, build them, we know how to cite them properly, we know how to sort of develop them on cost and on budget, which OPG has been, I think, doing a good job of in its nuclear refurbishments of its traditional reactors, then, you know, some of these questions about cost overruns, some of these questions around manufacturing efficiencies, some of these sort of bulk purchase benefits could really start to accrue. And that's going to help manage the costs of deploying these SMRs. For the record, that's the same logic we apply, you know, in arguing for hydro, because if we could coordinate the building of 10 hydro dams across the country in a staged approach, send the workers with experience to those parts of the country, procure the turbines altogether, there are efficiencies we can get that help us manage some of the higher costs of these projects relative to renewables. So when you make a learning curve argument, I think it's just as important to make this sort of like, can we do a better job on these bespoke engineering projects than we are currently doing as well? So I, I think with respect to SMRs, they're a promising technology, but they're far from the tech development that we would need for them to really play a huge role in the energy transition for Canada today. But Colin, this has been a fascinating conversation about Canada's electricity system, where we need to go, some of the challenges. And, and I think you've underscored the need for uh, prompt action, uh, putting this on the Canadian, into the Canadian energy discourse, you know, which too often, I mean, what do we talk about? You know, Alberta is Alberta's latest complaint, you know, about the federal government. Now we're obsessed with LNG for because of Europe. And we're not putting these structural problems that we've got into the energy disc, uh, discussion so that, the, you know, the average Canadian can can be informed and and, you know, come to a conclusion on it. And, and policymakers even are, well, uh, in my opinion, uh, are woefully uninformed about what the issues are around around the electricity system and energy transition in general. So wrap it up for us. Uh, what is it that your report, what would you like to see? Uh, what impact might this report or should it have? Yeah, so what I'll leave with is, is really this point that if we're going to have a net zero electricity grid by 2035, we need to start now and we need to keep as many of the potential technologies for clean electricity on the table for as long as possible. Technology is going to develop over the time that we're planning at the grid. You know, we're, we're, we're tasking ourselves with a 30 year view of what energy systems could look like. We're not going to get the right technology on our first shot. We're going to have to account for tech development in that, which means we have to be sort of tech agnostic in this early stage of the game. Lay out the foundation, lay out regulatory structures that allow, you know, new tech, existing tech to compete. Lay out regulatory structures that recognize the differences between those technologies, the project timelines, the project costs, the financing requirements for them, allow them to spread through the rate base over a longer period, for example. Those things will matter a lot. And those are all things we need to do now to get it right for 2035. So a bit of sense of urgency, I think, is what I hope the report comes away with. A bit of this 
idea that we don't have to pick today what technologies win. We don't have to commit to doing only wind and solar and battery storage. We can look at other storage forms. We can look at other clean electricity. And, you know, that, that we don't have a minute to lose really on this. If we're going to facilitate the adoption of electric vehicles and home heat pumps and all these other electric technologies that we need to be deploying if we want to hit our overall economy-wide emissions target. Because the fewer charging stations we have, the fewer heat pump additions to homes, when people are worried about whether they're going to have enough electricity, those things matter a lot today for emissions driven by the combustion of fossil fuels in other parts of our economy. So this is basically the thing that facilitates everything. We need to electrify. We know we need to electrify. That means growing production and it means growing it thoughtfully so that we're not adding unnecessary emissions into the electricity system. One wrinkle on, on your wrap up here. The, the sure. focus has been clean electricity. We're talking about uh, greenhouse gas emissions. We need the need to mm -hmm. decarbonize, hit our climate targets, those sorts of things. But <clears throat> it's become painfully clear to, to us, I think, that clean the clean energy uh, transition is also transforming the global economy. Mm -hmm. That we are, we, China has demonstrated to us that the, the what happens, uh, you know, as your you shift to electric vehicles, as you shift to renewables, as you shift to these electric processes in industry, um, is that it's actually more efficient, and it's lower cost, and it has all sorts mm -hmm. of other benefits. And it's very clear to me that electricity is the foundation of the 21st century economy. And China is so far ahead of us. And Canadians don't understand that if we don't have this electricity system we're talking about, it's not just that prices might rise 30% by 2030. It's not, it's that our very foundation of our prosperity is in danger. If we're, we're in danger of not being competitive in the 2030s and 2040s and the 2050s, because we haven't done the work today to restructure, re-engineer and re reform our electricity system. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, I, I do think clean electricity is going to be table stakes in 2035 for industry, for transportation, for all parts of our economy. And we're starting to see that across industry. I mean, we wrote a piece in, in January on skills development for the green economy. And one thing we heard from steel producers, that's sort of how we were framing the piece, was their upstream customers or their downstream customers we're demanding green steel. We don't really have very much green steel production in Canada. We have a lot of plans to make it, to build a lot of electric arc furnaces, but we don't have green steel rolling off the lines. And so at least not in any major quantity to service the sort of automotive steel demand. So it's obvious that clean electricity is the backbone of the net zero economy. That doesn't mean we need to electrify every single end use of fossil fuels because there are cases where it doesn't work well. Can't get a plane into the ground on batteries alone. So we have to be thoughtful about what parts of the economy we electrify and don't, but we're going to need more electricity and it's going to have to be as low carbon as possible. So that's really the challenge for the next decade is making sure we have the structures in place that let us build that new electricity system. It took us a hundred years to build the current electricity system we have. We can't do a hundred years to triple it by 2050. Well, we on, just don't have enough time. On, on that note, uh, every Canadian needs to listen to this podcast because this is 
absolutely key to our economic prosperity going forward. Colin, I really appreciate this. I'd encourage everybody to uh, read your report. I'll put a link in the show notes. And thank you very much for this. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure.